And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Amity Schles. She chairs the board of Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation and the Manhattan Institute's Hayek Book Prize, serves as a scholar at the King's College. She's written a number of books, and today we want to review her book, Great Society, A New History. Amity, it's an honor to have you on with us today. It's an honor to be here. You know, uh, a friend of mine recommended that we interview you and gave me a link to your book, and right away it worked out that we could get together and talk about this, so I ordered the book quick, came in last night, I've been reading it, and this morning, and I find it to be a fascinating book. Let me ask you about the title, Great Society, A New History. Uh, To me, history is what it is, but I assume that this means a a new, more accurate description of the history that went on with the so-called Great Society? Yes. uh, Sometimes old history books are incomplete um, or don't emphasize something that one feels needs to be emphasized. So um, this book is a new history because it is a revision. Right. Now, um, in our country... I'm sure you've sensed the same. There seems to be um, very strong sides, you know, one side and the other. And increasingly, it seems young Americans especially are attracted to socialism and uh, kind of a economic redistribution. Does your book uh, address some of that? Yes. In fact, the book opens with a young socialist going to... Washington to talk to the executive branch, essentially the White House, and say, why not socialism? Sounds good to me. <laughs> why not socialism? You know, um, so uh, nothing is new. It is just forgotten. Yes. And uh, th- what was driving that young man who was Catholic named Michael Harrington, not very young, somewhat young, uh, was a sense of idealism and obligation toward the poor of America. And he he could just didn't believe capitalism would help poor people. Uh, he believed the rest of the poor in America, because the number of poor was <clears throat> the share of poor was diminishing, ought to be rescued by the government. That was the Christian thing to do. So, mm. in, you know, in his his travels and his seeking in the course of his life, he he went from Catholic social work to socialism, yes. and that's not uncommon for for that period. Yes, yes, and, um, you know, we're certainly a Christian group here, and we see the uh, obligation on a personal level to help those in need, um, but it's certainly not uh, the purpose of government to uh, to do such things uh, by and large. It's it's more to protect and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so that was the introduction called The Clash. So the question in our minds, when we tithe, when we're doing charity, um, is that the same as taxation? And I guess the characters in my book would say that taxation to help the poor and charitable gift to help the poor are equivalent. And I take issue with that. Uh, Sometimes charity is better than government payment. Uh, So, you know, but it's a very big question that, that, um, dogs us 
to today. If we don't pay enough taxes or the amount other people demand, are we charitable? Mm. Are we upright people? Uh, and so the, the, what Sergeant Shriver, who was the head of the Office of Economic Opportunity, the poverty czar, the guy who was supposed to fix it all, believed as well as Harrington, whom he interviewed, was that basically taxes were like tithing. We, the, the authority needed them to help the poor. Yeah, I guess uh, the big distinction in my mind is that uh, if I don't pay my taxes, the government has power to punish me, put me in jail, take my land, whatever. Um, If I decide not to tithe, that's a moral issue between me and God. I may be counseled at some point by an elder in the church, but that's the end of it. And so there's there's a huge difference between the two in my mind. In my mind as well, and this equation helped fuel the idealism of the 60s. I mean, they didn't call it the good society. They called it what they thought, the great society. <laughs> so it was a very ambitious moment, uh, similar to now. You know, you, you see young people who just say, why not remake the world? Yeah, yeah. One of the chapters, the first chapter, in fact, you title The Bonanza, and I was reading through that, and I found it quite fascinating. Uh, you tied in one of the large companies here in America, General Electric, uh, GE. And um, can you explain just a little bit? I know we don't have enough time, but just really briefly, as you think about GE and how they interacted with government in those earlier days, back in the 60s, I guess? Well, most histories of a policy, great society with a government policy, don't get into companies. And and very consciously, I went to look for what companies were doing and saying in the 60s as Lyndon Johnson's great social program was unfolding. Because companies are the ones who pay for social projects by governments. GE was an interesting one. Um, It was, was you know, it was a Siamese twin with government. It was almost part, really, they, they fed off each other as part of the military-industrial complex, as Eisenhower called it. That is, mm-hmm. GE had a lot of important contracts with government and actually believed defense. It couldn't get along without government, and yet GE was also a free market company. Mm-hmm. And it had a little free market wing to pump out free market propaganda to tr- teach its workers about the importance of individual effort. And the, the um, helper, they had to, to deliver this message to workers, free markets are good, businesses should be independent, was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, so so uh, that's um, the young man, an aging actor, not so young, not old, you know, who, and Reagan didn't just work there for six months. Ray, Reagan worked there year upon year, the 50s to the early 60s, and gave literally more than a thousand speeches on behalf of GE about markets, about communism and so on. And he started out a rock rib Democrat, a new dealer, but he, over time he came to see the importance of markets. He gave his son some GE stock and this experience at a company prepped Reagan for politics. Now in that chapter, you also mentioned something I found fascinating that you called the great table. And that consisted of big labor big business and the government, and basically they really ran the economy, I think is what you were saying. 
Well, yes, of course. I mean, we th- in Europe, this is more evident. And in the Soviet Union of old, men would, you know, write a five-year plan with growth rates, inflation, and so on. They were called plans, right? Um, and we kind of think of our market as free, but a good share of the U.S. economy was planned, or let's say uh, planned, but um, by unions which were much more powerful then than now. Um, that mm-hmm. would be pri- unions in industry, um, the government, and the companies, and the Fed would be sort of in there too sometimes. And this was based on a fallacy, which is that you can plan an economy. You can yeah. plan individual ventures, but you can't. It's kind of exhausting. I used to feel sorry for Soviet planners because they had to be in charge of war and the economy. That's <laughs> too much, too many briefs. I mean, how do they do all that? I'm teasing. But, but, and this idea that the government could plan and foresee, this, this hardened notion began to crack in the 60s because we realized that the, the gray table was not noticing some things that were happening, such as, for example, um, the entry into U.S. markets of imports. Oh, yeah. Toyota is a character in my book. Uh, they did not see that. Have anyone seen the Henry Ford movie lately? Uh, and Ferrari, Henry Ford was busy racing Ferrari. He wasn't thinking about, oh, maybe cars would come from a place we conquered called Japan. Yes. It really, I mean, not much. He did, but not much. So, so there were the unexpected. The Great Table cannot account for the unexpected. And the idea that economic planning works is a fallacy. It's, you know, so, so that's what I developed in the book, pointing out, pointing out how we, we in a rotten decade, were some purgatory called the 70s as a result of planning. So the 60s describes the planning, and the 70s was the terrible result. Yes. Well, today we're talking with Amity Schles. Uh, she's the author of a new book, Great Society, A New History. And um, as I read a little further in your book, I found it fascinating to learn more about President Johnson. And um, could you tell us, what did Johnson really push for uh, in his term? Well, all men, including all presidents, are a collection of impulses. And Johnson and Nixon, in particular, were kind of bundles of nerves. And uh, Johnson, I mean, if you wanted to say, give one adjective to Johnson, it was ambitious. And if you wanted to say one, one thing he pushed for, that was more laws. Hmm. And I didn't say what kind of law, because that was secondary to him. He, was the, he had been the master of the Senate. Robert Caro has written a lot about that. He liked to get, it said he made laws the way other men ate chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> he just kept going, kept going. He had an idea, it became a law. He, he had uh, support of Congress, Democrats, majorities. Um, and he... But in terms of philosophy, there were some competing impulses in him. One was to finish the New Deal. He was a child of FDR and FDR's era. Roosevelt knew him and liked him and thought he was efficient. He worked in the New Deal 1930s office, the National Youth Administration. He was a congressman in that period as well. And Johnson, um, Roosevelt, there's a so cartoon description that Roosevelt liked Johnson because he got the young Johnson because he got things done. So this, with the Great Society, Johnson had the vanity and pride of telling himself he was executing what Franklin Roosevelt never finished or Harry Truman never finished. Mm. So, so that's Johnson. Um, he, he never really scrutinized his own laws and was often surprised at the consequences. He wasn't 
he would have been appalled if you called him socialist because he ab- abhorred communism. Sure. Um, but the point of this book, and indeed of the modern socialist, is a little bit of socialism has an effect too, i.e. social democracy. And the, the little social democratic measures which made up in toto uh, the great, great society program were socializing and hard to undo, as we see with entitlements today. Mm, yeah. Everything I've read, and I'm very limited, I'm no fan of the New Deal. And uh, in fact, I was reading something else uh, just recently that explained uh, the cause of the ending of the Great Depression. And uh, really, it was more the fact that government spending collapsed and tax rates were cut and uh, wartime price controls were lifted. And uh, then we saw personal consumption grow and, you know, all those healthy things that um, people like me like to see. <laughs> yes, and the real question about the Great Depression is not how it ended, which you, you've summarized some of the components well, but why did it last so long? Yes. Why did, it, why did you have, uh, it's not, did the war end the Depression? No, it's why did that darn Depression last all the way to that war? And what it was, um, I have a book about this called Forgotten Man that some listeners may know. But one of reason I knew I could I could lay out the argument um, was there was an economist at Chase Bank named Benjamin Anderson, and he wrote a giant tome um, about the economy in his lifetime. And he concluded regarding the 30s um, was that. The Great Depression was great in magnitude and endured because the government played God. He used that phrase. Mm. The government played God. And uh, I would you know, very, very happy to discover Anderson, who is not usually taught in our children's universities, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Right. Um, the Economics and the Public Welfare uh, is the name of the book. So, yeah. so I, I said, well, if the regular Chase economists thought this, and a few other people, such as big utilities executives, thought this about the New Deal and Roosevelt. Well, maybe um, it might be legitimate to research their attitude, and that's what I did in Forgotten Man. Right. Now, uh, here's a question just popped into my little brain here, and that is um, kids, I mentioned before, um, coming out of, let's say, high school at the university level, really kind of are fascinated by the idea of socialism, getting free stuff. Um, If you had the ear of one of these young people today and said, you know what, Um, here's the real truth about it. Uh, Be very careful what you wish for. How would you advise these young people? Well, uh, there are two ways to do it. One is to point out the past of socialism or Venezuela currently. Um, or the challenges of social democracies of Europe, the struggling East European nations, that's one way to do it, China. Um, But the other way is to help them uh, through the consumer goods they know. An example would be eBay, which is all about private trades. If eBay were heavily taxed, as it clearly would be in socialism, then you wouldn't want to use it, and you wouldn't be able to find that certain shirt you've been looking for or that certain adapter that, mm-hmm. you know, that's been discontinued but you need for a certain piece of technology that you like. So that's one. Um, Uber would probably be heavily taxed because it's a new innovation, and Uber only exists because we don't tax capital so heavily 
as to prevent um, the founders of Uber from getting money to start Uber because it did take money. It does take money. Um, I don't. The great tech revolution would not have happened. What the great tech revolution was going along well. You know, people were. Uh, Bob Noyce was already working at Intel. Um, Intel is a character in my book too, but it never would have taken off had we not cut taxes and secured intellectual property. Two things um, were, that were key that actually happened in the 70s. Um, capital gains taxes, which is what are important to investors and inventors, were effectively halved in the 1970s because business was doing nothing and certainly not inventing new telephones. And everyone was scared. It's a sort of rescue measure. And the other was the new law to make clear if you had an idea who owned it. Your university, you, but not necessarily the government always, even mm-hmm. though the government somehow funded the university directly mm-hmm. or indirectly. So, so these were super key to giving us the things we love today. Yes. Uh, you, you know, uh, the miracles of our life. Uber is such a miracle. Why is one, let's say one reason it's a miracle. Well, our children can get home from a party without driving, even if they perhaps have had a drink. Mm-hmm. That's a miracle for the suburbia. You may not approve of components of it, but it's a gosh darn miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, another miracle is you can find that thing that you want to buy. These, these are gifts of capitalism, not socialism. Yeah, uh, that, that's a good point. Uh, today we're talking with Amity Schles, and uh, she has written other books, as she uh, mentioned here. One is The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression and also a graphic edition of that, and the book Coolidge, and The Greedy Hand, How Taxes Drive Americans Crazy. That's a great title. I like that. Let's um, talk about another chapter in your book here, one I haven't yet read but really caught my eye, uh, chapter 8. It's called Guns, Butter, and Gold. And I noticed that throughout the book, you start a chapter... And during the time frame that you're writing about, you'll mention guns are, let's say, in the Great Society, you mention are 8.3% of GDP, butter 4.7% of GDP, and then you list the Dow Jones Industrial Average. But uh, this chapter, Guns, Butter, and Gold, what do, what do you cover in that? Well, the guns are defense spending. The butter are domestic spending, particularly entitlements. The butter is... So, so, and what's interesting, the reason the book tracks those two data points is, at first, guns cost more than butter, and by the end, um, butter costs more than guns. Yes. So, so, so this whole idea that we spend so much on defense, we don't. All students should look at defense spending as the share of GDP. It's much lower than it than it was in the past. You know, the the, right. the um, media are, are kind of misrepresentative there because they they the way they tell the story they make defense spending look bigger than it is. So the guns, butter, and gold was about Johnson and his trade offs. And we had a meter. We had gold. And other countries. This was before the end of the gold exchange standard. And other countries could come and say, "I want gold for my dollars," and they could get it. That was the way the gold standard worked. And they were coming a lot. And the gold stores of the United States in the Great Vaults were going down. And this made Johnson anxious because it was a clear meter of lack of faith in the dollar in America. 
so this would be foreigners, right? Foreign governments, okay. specifically. And so the gold was going down and down, and Johnson realized that he couldn't do a great society. He might be able to eradicate this painful, irritating measure. If you don't have a metric that shows how bad you are, you can get away with fooling people for a little longer. And they did um, eradicate part of the gold standard in his last time as president. But he realized overall he just he might not have the resources to do great. And that disappointed him. And he decided not, very surprisingly, not to run again for the presidency in 68. Mm. So it's it's really another name for that chapter is Lyndon Johnson Agonistes. Okay. And what does that word mean? I've seen it used in your book, Agonistes. In agony? <laughs> okay. I guess that's pretty simple. Uh, there well there's a famous uh poem, Samson Agonistes, um but about Samson in the Bible, but it just means a man in agony. Um and uh, he was because he felt America was ungrateful. Here yes. he he brought us civil rights, some of those laws we all really appreciate. You know, when he started only eight percent of blacks in Mississippi were registered to vote. Um, well that's a problem. He's you know, he got Medicare for our senior citizens, he got Medicaid, he he funded education mightily Johnson, well why isn't everyone saying thank you? Instead they're being mean about the Vietnam War and so on. Um, and, you know, he had an enormous ramp up from 50,000 to, four, you know, many times that um, in Vietnam. And he, the part of him that was integrity said, I really want to manage this war. I have hundreds of thousands of young American men overseas. And if I campaign, I won't have time for that, which is very honest of him. Mm. Uh, so, But the book is not about Johnson. It's a kind of best and the brightest about the people below the president. Um, because we never hear about them. The best and the brightest book originally was by David Halberstam, and it was about the people who managed badly the Vietnam War. What I posit is that there was a domestic best and the brightest, guys who could do no wrong, guys who were treated as deities, but who fumbled and created folly and were, were just as bad as the foreign policy best and the brightest. And sometimes it was the same cast. For the example, I'll give uh, one example there was a sense we'd begin to run out of everything. Um, that's what the poor economics gave us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to run out, so we have to do something. So we have to birth control. So we have to. Um, and there was a famous um, professor named Ehrlich who argued we should have a diaper tax and punish <laughs> through the tax called families that had too many children. Um, and McNamara bought into that. And he went, of all places, to argue for birth control to Notre Dame, <laughs> which I, I think is really insulting, frankly. Yeah, you know, he wanted to rub it in their face. And it's really insulting to go to a, a, a place with a, with a different view um, and trash an aspect of their view that's important to them sure. in, in a rank-pulling way. And that is what McNamara did um, while he was at the World Bank after being defense secretary. So these guys were um, were fools. Uh, they were well-intentioned fools. Yes. Well, today we've been talking with Amity Schles. She's author of this wonderful book called Great Society, A New History. And I would encourage you to uh, pick up a copy, dear listener, and read it. I think you'll find it most informative. 
Um, one of the things early in the book that uh, you already mentioned, Amity, was that GE um, kind of tried to teach uh, folks about the free market and why that's a superior form of um, economics. And um, I don't think our kids today have the opportunity to hear this other side. And so that being the case, getting a book like this would would truly help. Uh, The author name, again, Amity Schles, S-H-L-A-E-S. And um, where can people get a copy of your book, Amity? Oh, uh, in bookstores or on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble. Um, I will add, um, I have made cartoon books before because I like um, the young adult reading crowd, and there are a lot of pictures and charts in this book for that reason as well. Thank you. That is really cool. Amity, thank you so much for joining us today, and God bless you. Thank you. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. 